You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the business and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, we are going to talk to Dr. Andy Clark about financial sustainability in equine practice. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Grice, business consultant and former equine practice owner. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you in 2024 by Care Credit. Dr. Clark serves as an advisor to equine veterinary businesses. His focus is to bring clarity to the business of equine practice. Dr. Clark has owned a one-doctor practice out of a garage as well as a regional referral hospital. Two decades into his successful career as an equine practitioner, he had a nearly fatal work injury and returned to school for an MBA. In a consulting advisory role, he has served as the CEO of Avanti Equine Veterinary Partners, the interim CEO of the AVMA Professional Liability Insurance Trust, the CEO of Haggard Equine Medical Institute, the virtual CEO of dozens of equine practices, the facilitator of three veterinary management groups, an advisor to more than 200 equine veterinary practices, and to 15 companies providing services and products to equine veterinary medicine. He has also been the advisor or consultant to three colleges of veterinary medicine. Welcome, Dr. Clark. It's so great to have you today. Well, thank you, Dr. Grice, for inviting me to join you. I'm really happy to be here. You know, you recently wrote an op-ed piece entitled Equine Practice Might Be Financially Sustainable, But Not the Way We Manage Now. It was published online on the Equimanagement website. What inspired you to write about this topic? I've been writing on this topic without publishing it for over a year. Um, And my decision to write the op-ed piece stems from my personal mission, which is make a difference. And I've been I've been around and in the business of equine veterinary practice for 47 years and I've watched equine practice financial sustainability deteriorate for years. And in my opinion we're at an inflection point that necessitates a major change in our business model. And the reason I chose op-ed which is unusual in the equine veterinary industry for sure, but I I read them all the time in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's an opinion editorial. So this is entirely my opinion. I think it's well-founded, but that's why I chose the op-ed platform. Gotcha. I read it and was really impressed with what you had to say. It certainly reflects many things that I believe are true in our industry. You have been a business consultant and served in in many management roles for many years now, but at one time you were a top sports medicine practitioner. And so in your own practice life, what were the key financial lessons that that you learned? Well, I'm going to give credit to my amazing technician, Trish McDonald. And Trish taught me perhaps the key financial lesson that I ever learned in practice. 
And while we were working in a barn, uh, Trish carried around a laptop and created the billing and medical records on the fly. And so on this particular day, we stopped in front of a stall and I did a medical progress exam on a patient. Then I discussed the next steps with the trainer. Trish recorded the findings and the discussion and then asked me how much to charge. And I said, nothing. He's a friend. And without one millisecond of delay, I mean, not any delay, she asked, so you pay him to be your friend? And that was a pivotal lesson in my business, and it marked the end of discounting in my practice. Um, and, and discounting is a huge issue for us in equine veterinary medicine and perhaps in all of veterinary medicine. But um, after I came to the realization that I was paying people to be my friend, I stopped discounting. And then, oddly enough, the, the second major financial lesson was the direct result of a nearly fatal kick by a patient. And since I could no longer do the work of a sport horse veterinarian, I needed a new way to make a living. So I went back to school for an MBA. And during that program, day by day by day, I learned that many of the historical equine practice management strategies and techniques were actually counterproductive to financial success. And I had an innumerable number of wow moments, realizing that's why that happens. And so I decided to stay near the profession I was passionate about and, and work as a business consultant and advisor. You know, my first passion is equine veterinary medicine. I was, I was one of those kids that at eight years old, I decided I wanted to be an equine vet. And so it was a, it was a tough pill to swallow that I could no longer be that. So I, I feel really fortunate to have found a way to stay close to my, my passion. So those are the, the probably the two best things I learned w was a don't discount and b there are reasons that things don't work and there are also reasons that thing will work. It's so interesting when I did my MBA, I had a similar experience where I believe that that you and I shared that we had sort of a a evangelistic need to bring what we learned to others. You know, it, those wow moments, you're like, nobody knows this. We need to share <laughs> this, you know? Um, so yeah, I, uh, I really resonate with what you've, with what you've just said. Interestingly, in that editorial piece that you wrote, I'm going to read a quote from it. Somehow equine veterinarians have accepted the responsibility to subsidize horse hobby and horse businesses that horse owners cannot afford. So I think all of us have done this as practitioners at one time or another. What is your advice to practitioners that have slipped into this position and need to introduce changes in their fee structures to their clients? Well, there, there's a lot of emotion and anxiety in this discussion, but um, I think we start with we all became equine veterinarians, largely, maybe completely because of our passion for horses. And then I think we need to understand that the, the DNA of most equine practitioners blesses and curses us with compassion for horses and compassion for other people's financial burdens. And it's painful for us to accept that financial responsibility for people choosing an expensive hobby that they can't afford 
that responsibility does not rest with the veterinarian. And if you could somehow turn your compassion and emotion switches off and just say that out loud, well, of course it's not. I mean, if I choose to buy a Ferrari, I'm going to have to pay a Ferrari mechanic. And and so I think it's, it's, it's very clear, but we have to accept that it's not our responsibility. And, and one of the discussions that we have with ourselves and sometimes we have out loud is we look at the total on an invoice and we say, oh, that's too high. And then we discount. And then my, my drill when that happens, this is, let's look at the first line item. Is that too high? No, 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 that's, that's okay. And then so, so we now go through all the line items and each one is fine. And then I, I ask, well, why is it too high? It's just too high. Okay. And that's that, that it, we're, we're making a very emotional, compassionate decision for somebody who didn't ask us to make that decision. And, and we're lowering the bill to the detriment of our family, our partners, our employees. We have now less to pay them to feed our families to whatever we do with money. We have less of it because we've accepted the responsibility to subsidize a hobby someone can't afford or perhaps can't afford to own the horse, but can't afford it to, sh- to show it at the level they want to. So somehow no one ever told us this, but somehow we all got the message. That's your responsibility. And I, and I think once we can accept that, then we need to understand that equine practice is losing a talent war okay and we're we're in a talent war with companion animal medicine industry veterinarians and government employers of veterinarians for to name the the big ones okay and so they're getting veterinarians that we should have because those people are very interested in equine practice. I'm not, I'm not talking about con- con- convincing people to do equine when they're really interested in something else. But I'm saying there are a certain group of people, AVMA says now 1% of the graduates who are interested in equine. Okay. And that's not very many. If you, if whatever there are 3,500 to 4,000 veterinary graduates a year, well, 1% of that is not a very big number. Okay, when you consider the baby boomers are are moving along. So we can't afford to lose that war. Okay, and and the reason we lose it, in my opinion, again, back to the op-ed, is over compensation, emergency call, and culture. Okay, I think those are the big three. And I think the culture-related issues are often tied to compensated and emergency call. So I think if we could solve compensation and emergency call, I think we would we would elevate. Now, we wouldn't make it perfect, but we would elevate a lot of cultures. OK, I think that um, my idea on emergency veterinarian of emergency calls is that practitioners should have a dedicated veterinarian who does emergencies, not who works all day, then does emergencies at night, then works all day again. There should be dedicated people all day and at night who, who do emergency veterinary medicine. And they should be paid very, very well. In fact, they should probably be paid for paid more than the daytime clinicians. But, you know, I, I think they should be paid very well and certainly paid well enough to compete with companion animal medicine, where right now there's some debate whether they actually start at twice as much as equine veterinarians or 60 percent more. Um, whatever it is, they start at more and we need to be able to pay that. 
And the hard, cold truth of that is all of those things cost money to solve. We can't solve compensation with good intention. We can't solve emergency coverage with good intention. Certainly, we can affect culture with good intentions. But I, I think it's really important that, that this comes down to money. And that's painful because we're, we're frugal people. We come from backgrounds the, uh, often of middle-class families, working middle-class families, not particularly agrarian families. But, you know, so we don't come from wealth as, as, a, as a profession or a legacy of wealth. So there's only one source of money in a business, and that's the customer's. So I think those are the those are sort of the things that we have to realize and accept that have to change. All of that is so important right now as we we look at trying to make equine practice more sustainable and more attractive. You've definitely hit the nail on the head. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit keeps equine veterinarians at the heart of care by providing horse owners with simple, budget-friendly financing options. By helping to bridge the gap between cost and care, Care Credit supports healthy financial relationships between veterinarians and their clients. Clients have a flexible way to pay over time for all types of care, and practices get paid in two business days. It's a payment experience everyone can feel good about. If you were a practice owner right now, practices out there, what are the most important things that they need to do right now to be financially sustainable? Some of them are in areas where there are lots of equine practitioners and they feel some degree of fear. Well, I, I think that fear is, is probably the biggest word that in, in this whole podcast, and, and you brought it up. And historically, we have made fear-based decisions on what to do, what not to do, how much to charge, how much not to charge. And I think that our commitment to keeping the bill low is often at the liability of the patient. Okay. We could do better by the patient sometimes, but we're trying so hard to keep the bill low that we we don't do some of the things we probably could do. Uh, if that's diagnostics or if that's, and, and we talk, our, we negotiate with ourselves. We talk ourselves out of doing diagnostics because they might be expensive out of doing this, out of doing that. So so I think the first thing we have to acknowledge in order to make this change, change only happens when the pain of changing is greater than the pain of not changing. And I, I believe, my opinion is, we have arrived at that point where the pain of not changing is now greater than the pain of changing. Now, we're still fearful about making that change, then as far as the practice owners, then they would have to acknowledge that we're at the place that we have to change this, you know, this, this has to happen. And then they have to know where to expect the resistance. And I believe that the resistance will come from three sources in this order. The veterinarians, okay, will be the, the most vigorous source of pushback on this. The staff will be the second largest. And often you've got people that are working almost paycheck to paycheck, trying to have a horse hobby of their own. And they, they cringe at having to charge Mrs. Smith more for her horse. Okay. So, so we have any, and, and I believe the clients will, will have the least pushback. Okay. To pricing that needs to happen in order to support the change we need to make. 
I think the clients are beginning to realize that they they read the article, where have all the horse vets gone? You know, they hear mm-hmm. every day, they talk to each other. I can't find somebody to come out. You know, my horse is sick. I, can't, I don't have a trailer. I, what can I do? Okay. Well, there are not enough equine veterinarians to do all the work we have. So first of all, supply and demand is on our side. So we need to do something with it in order to solve the problem. And I think that, so again, the pushback has come from the veterinarians, the staff and the clients. I believe in that order. So we all need to put our veterinarian hat on and accept the fact that we need to lead this change. Okay. And in order to pay veterinarians and staff a competitive salary and attract and retain dedicated night and day, not one person night and day, but day people and night people on emergency veterinarians, we have to charge significantly more. And clients are the only source of money to pay veterinarians and staff as well to provide emergency service. So there's no magic bean. There's no cash in the basement that we can go down and fill a sack full and bring it up. Okay. The clients are the only source of money. And, and I think those are, those are the things that we have to realize in order to become financial. I don't think how to do it. What we need to do is not very complicated, but I think the process of doing it is very emotional and very frightening. I agree. I think that we are just our own worst enemies in thinking about it. And you know what? It's one of the things that makes veterinarians some of the most trusted medical professionals and professionals in general. You know, because we're compassionate, because we care, we're kind, you know, but it does make it harder for us to make the kind of business changes that are absolutely essential in order to move the profession forward. So it's I, I hard stuff. Just one like of the things said. that we we might think more about is what does charging less? Who who are all the stakeholders in the downstream problems? Okay, that's not only the the veterinarian that's doing the work it's the employee of the veterinarian that's doing the work or the team members of the veterinarian that's doing the work it's the family it is the families of all those people and it is the the whoever's invested in the company and i don't think this is a problem that's specific to corporate or or independent practices this is this is a problem specific to equine veterinary medicine so, but there are just, there are a lot of casualties in here. You know, if, if you wish your child could do a little bit more at something that's expensive and you can't really pay for it. Well, if you start looking at all the discounts you gave, you know, you were discounting, you know, ballet, you were discounting little league baseball, you were discounting riding lessons, you were discounting a vacation with your family. Okay. That's where that money went. It's that's so funny. interesting because one of the things that I, a little story I have told to recommend to people who discount a lot is I want you to go to the bank and I want you to get 10 $100 bills or 20 50s. And when you're just feeling like you really need to give a discount, cut out the middleman. Don't put it on the invoice. Take out your wallet and hand the, hand the cash over. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Because because that's what you're doing. You're taking it out of your own wallet. And it always gets a laugh. But the thing about it is, it's also very true. So I agree with you wholeheartedly about discounts. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today, Dr. Clark? 
There are some points I'd like to make, I guess. And the, the first one is our business plan has stopped working. Okay. And that's not a new problem. I was a lot younger and you could already see this coming. Uh-huh. Um, but we were the last bastion of rugged individualists. And, you know, uh, we, we, we just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. It, it can no longer be ignored. So our business model has stopped working. And I think that I already mentioned this, but the necessary change is going to be very difficult, very emotional, and we will be afraid. Okay. And, and not very many people deal well with fear. Okay. We, we generally make bad decisions when we're afraid. So, so understand that we're, we're going to be emotional and, and we're going to be afraid. So that, that's a tough place to make a decision. And then I, I think we need to make the plan for the change before we start implementing the change. And I, and I think we're all, you know, like, like volunteer firemen in a small town, you know, you'd leap to action. Okay. And I think this is a change that is not going to be resolved by leaping into action. I think this is a problem that's going to be resolved by looking at the stakeholders, looking at the where the pushback's going to come from. So we have to first convince the veterinarians. Then we have to convince the staff. And after we have buy-in from those two, then we can go talk to the owners. Okay. I, but I think we have to make that plan and have everybody buy in before we start implementing change. And then the, the other thing, if, if anybody's interested in reading my op-ed, um, it's, it's on my website. It's dvmmba.com. And you just scroll down to the landing, the landing page to the op-ed. And, um, it was a scary thing to write because everyone's initial reaction is going to be to gasp. Okay. I mean, it's just, no, no, that can't be, you know, and and I partially waited until I was at this stage of my career because re- I don't work for anybody right now. So if I were working for someone, it, they would be damned by this. This of course. Idea. So I'm I'm a 98 percent retired guy. And um, it's my opinion and the clambering and pushback can come directly to me and not impact anybody else. So that was part of my timing. Right. And the uh, show notes will have the link to this uh, op-ed as well. So okay, um, it'll be easy to get to. I want to thank you so much for for coming and speaking today, Dr. Clark. It's uh, always great to hear your point of view. You're generally right on point. And I want to thank all of you for joining us, all of you listeners joining us for the Business of Practice podcast And a big thanks to our sponsor, Care Credit. And to all my listeners out there, be brave and embrace change. 